Uh, we are continuing our sermon series, Holier Than Thou. Um, as we've seen, holiness, we talk about holiness. First and foremost, holiness is a gift that God gives to us in His grace, right? The word holiness means to be set apart. Both the Old Testament Hebrew word, New Testament Greek word, both mean to be set apart for a sacred purpose. Uh, holiness is God's gift to us. We are set apart. We believe in Jesus and we receive the gift of grace. We are set apart by God for the purpose of experiencing his love. And then we grow in holiness, right? That is the gift of holiness. And then as we saw last week, we grow in holiness by growing in response to God's love, by continuing to respond humbly dependently, joyfully to the love of God, to the presence of God. By When we walk in the Spirit, when we abide in the vine, we looked at those metaphors, we grow in our responsive love to God's love. But it's not just growing in our response to God's love. It also requires us to grow in giving love. Holiness requires us to continue and, of course, to stay rooted in a responding love, but it requires us to grow in the generosity of love. Uh, we are to love God and we are to love others. That is one command, right? What is the greatest command in all of Scripture? Jesus said it is to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. These are one command. They are two expressions of the same thing. And that is, of course, exactly what the Holy Spirit produces in us, right? When the Holy Spirit abides in us as believers, uh, he produces holiness, which isn't surprising. He is the Holy Spirit after all. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? That's what Galatians tells us. And of course, all of the attributes that come with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so for most of us, honestly, when we think about it this way, growing in love sounds pretty awesome. It's like, yeah, who wouldn't want to grow in love? Right? Who wouldn't want to be loved more, have a greater capacity to experience love and to grow in love and the, the delightfulness of, of love, right? Growing in love sounds awesome, but listen, we're not just talking about growing in our experience to, to our ability to receive love. We're, we're growing in our ability to love, and that's the challenge because that requires us to love people, and people are hard. People are difficult. People, people have rough edges. People disappoint us. People betray us. People don't live up to our expectations. People, people. <laughs> to love a person requires us to learn to love someone who has the capacity to be unlovely. That's true for every person. And that means love is costly. And often the cost is more than we're willing to pay. We like love as long as the one we love is lovely. We like love as long as the experience of love gives us more than it costs us. We like love as long as it feeds us more than it empties us. The cost is often more than we want to pay, but the essence of holiness is love. There is no holiness without love. So to grow in holiness requires us to grow in love. So holiness requires us to love people, real people, not just humanity. It's easy to love things in the abstract. We're not called to love humanity. We are called to love people. 
And if we're going to love people, what that means is we have to learn to love the process that people are in, right? To love a person is to love a process. And I'm going to explain what that means. But first, let's take a look at our text. Luke 22, we're going to be looking at verses 54 through 66, 54 through 66. So page 883, starting in 54. Then they seized him, and that is Jesus. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas, and and, uh, the soldiers came. And then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then her servant girl, seeing at him as he sat in the light, looked closely at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, uh, this is, we get to read this morning about one of the lowest points of Peter's life, potentially the lowest. I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. Peter, 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 Peter. Uh, we talked about Peter last week when we looked at the, the, the Last Supper and the washing of the feet and his impetuousness and his craziness. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They were the three that were often taken with Jesus into special situations or, or into special experiences. They were all three fishermen. They were, from what we can tell, all three large and powerful men. Peter was a big guy, and he had a big confidence, and he had an even bigger mouth. Um, earlier in the evening, Peter had boasted uh, when, when Jesus uh, was, was talking once again about being betrayed, which Jesus, Peter always hated it when Jesus talked about that stuff, but, but he had boasted about his own courage, right? It's earlier in the chapter, in chapter 22, verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. To which Jesus responded in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Now, a few, few hours later, Peter does, in fact, deny Jesus three times. He, so when Jesus was betrayed, Peter, Peter, Peter responded, as Peter does, with action. Um, because in the moment, Peter is always impetuous, and he would rather act than wait. He would rather do than rest. And in that moment, he picked up a sword, and in the darkness, decided he was going to be Jesus's defender and, and took a swing at a guy. It turned out to be not even an armed guy. It turned out to be a servant, and uh, his attempt to bring serious damage literally just cut off the dude's ear. Uh, Jesus healed him. It was okay, um, but Peter was pretty inept, in his uh, momentary surge of bravery. Um, all the other disciples ran off into the darkness. Peter, 
Peter couldn't run. So this is the irony, is that he was trapped by his shame. He was too proud to run, but he was also trapped by his fear. He didn't have enough courage to stand. So he traveled a little distance behind Jesus and watched him led into this house where Jesus was being put on mock trial. And, and he couldn't run because he, he had too much pride, but he couldn't stand because he had too much fear. And there in that twilight, that mixed light of, of the fire and of the darkness, he just hovered, right? Um, all four gospels recount this story. Um, there are very few stories that all four Gospels tell us about. This is one of them. It was a significant moment in these final moments of Jesus's life, the shame of Peter. I chose this account specifically because of that little detail in verse 61, which I find so powerful. In verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter in this, in this crowded courtyard, in the chaos of the darkness and the light, is just trying to who knows what, find out what's going to happen. Um, but while he's there, a servant girl says, this is one of the dudes that was with him, and, and, and he gets all flustered. No, 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 I wasn't. And then a little bit later, somebody's like, yeah, no, this is the guy. No, 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 it wasn't me. And then finally someone hears his accent, the Galilean accent, which uh, very much like a, a Southern accent today. I mean, you just know when somebody has a Southern accent where they're from and the Galileans were like that. They, they had these accents. And, and so anybody who was from Galilee was clearly with Jesus. And, uh, and, and somebody's like, no, I hear your accent, man. You were totally with Jesus. And and um, uh, Matthew tells us that on the third time, he actually swore with an oath. I do not know this man. Um, a moment of deep shame for someone who had so much confidence in himself, somebody who thought of himself as so strong and so brave. And then the rooster crows, and when the rooster crows, it's almost as if his head clears. And in that moment, he looks. He looks to where Jesus is. And we don't know if he's looking through an open window into the house, or if Jesus in that moment is in the courtyard, but when he looks over at Jesus, Jesus is already looking at him. And they lock eyes. And in that moment, Peter knows that he is completely exposed. Can you imagine the overwhelming shame and guilt you would feel if in the moment of your greatest treachery, your greatest weakness, your greatest self-betrayal, let alone the betrayal of the one you claim to love, was exposed. And at that very moment, it's not just you processing it, but you look up, and there is the person you have betrayed, locking eyes with you. The weight of your failure and your cowardice would come crushing down on you, the exposure of all your strength as weakness. So it's no surprise that in the very next verse, Peter runs off into the darkness, weeping bitterly. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about Peter, his struggle with shame, and, and, and that later passage um, where Jesus restores him to ministry, right? After the resurrection, Jesus shows up and, and, and lovingly and powerfully affirms him and calls him back to ministry. But, but I don't want to focus on Peter here. I want us for this morning to focus on Jesus. Because when I say loving a person requires us to love a process, 
No one illustrated that better than Jesus, and very few stories in Scripture illustrate it better than his relationship with Peter. Jesus initiated his relationship with Peter, right? He's the one who called Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen, and he was like, hey, leave your boats, leave your nets, and you're going to follow me. You're going to be my disciples, and and so they did, right? Um, Jesus patiently walked with Peter over the course of three years during that stage of public ministry. Um, He continually, gently, clearly confronts Peter's arrogance, calls him to humility, rebukes him when he oversteps, but he is also continually reminding him that he was called, that he was chosen, that he is loved, and that he is secure. That God had a plan for him, and that Peter was going to grow into that plan. Jesus loved Peter where he was, who he was. But while he did so, he continually called Peter to grow into what he would become so that he could grow into this, this, this fuller, more mature, holier, in practice version of himself. In Matthew 16, there's an interesting passage that I think captures this tension. In Matthew 16, I'm going to flip there, but, but Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And the disciples are all like, you know, the prophet or, or this or that, the rabbi. And he's like, no, 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 I want to know who you say I am. And Peter is the only one, man, but he steps up and he's like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him and said, blessed are you, Peter Barjona, which means son of Jonathan, you, Peter um, for God, for you it is the Holy Spirit who has revealed this to you. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter's name means pebble. And, and he's using a word play on this rock, on this revelation that's been given to you, but also on you, Peter, I will build my church. You have an incredibly glorious future. God has a plan for you of significance. God is going to work through you powerfully, right? And then in the very next paragraph, Jesus starts explaining to them what he's going to have to do. Go to Jerusalem, he's going to have to be betrayed, he's going to have to be handed over, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die for the sins of his people. He who knew no sin is going to become sin, that that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Once he was raised from the dead, he would become our substitute in judgment so we could become his partner in blessing. And Peter looks at him and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Not you. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Like literally, that's the same exact conversation. Blessed are you, Peter. Upon this rock, God will build his church. Get behind me, Satan. This is what I want you to catch. Jesus didn't love some theoretical future version of Peter. He loved Peter in all of his messiness. Whether he was speaking profound truth or was giving voice to the lies of Satan. This is what holiness looks like in practice. This is the fruit of the Spirit on full display. Whether the relationship is challenging and requires conflict or it is enjoyable and full of laughter. Because Jesus was holy, his love didn't fluctuate 
with Peter's ability to deserve it. In fact, his love for Peter had nothing to do with Peter's ability to deserve it. It was rooted in his own generosity. Because Jesus was moving in the generosity of grace, he loved Peter. Jesus modeled for us this profound and challenging truth. To love a person is to love a process. Peter was in process. And Jesus loved Peter, even in the ugly chapters of that story. Jesus loved Peter even when that process was full of sin, fear, cowardice, betrayal. The moment we read about today was a really bad moment. But it was just that. It was a moment. That was a devastating moment, both for Peter and Jesus. The weight of relational betrayal in that moment was devastating to them both. And I think we're short-sighted if we think Jesus didn't feel the emotional ramifications of that moment. While he was on trial for his life in a mock trial, Peter is out in the courtyard denying him to a slave girl. Peter, like all of us, was a person in progress. He was growing, he was changing, he was a mess of humility and arrogance. Now for Peter, he actually had to be humiliated in order for him to break into the greater experience of humility. And that was ugly. And it was costly, both for him and Jesus. But holiness requires us to love real people, which means we must learn to grow in our ability to love. So I want to give you three points this morning about what holiness looks like and how we can grow in holiness in this critical area. First of all, holiness requires us to love always. Holiness requires us to love always. Loving people is a complicated thing because every person is a mixture of lovable and unlovable traits. Theologians talk about creation being a glorious ruin Glorious because it was created in the image or, or by the hand of a glorious God and God's glory is present in it, but a ruin because of mankind's rebellion. And that, that describes every single human being. Every single human being is a glorious ruin, a tossed salad of awesome stuff and really, really nasty stuff, right? Some stuff that is really, really fun and pleasant and yeah, and some stuff that is really, really bad and bitter and yuck. That's the way it works, right? The ugly stuff and the glorious stuff. Depending on the day, you're either going to experience the glory or the gory, but they're both there all the time. Holiness requires us to relate to a person's whole story, not just the present chapter that we are experiencing. Jesus loved Peter from moment to moment, even in the bad moments because he never lost sight of the big picture. Peter was a person in process. He was who he was, but he wasn't yet who he would become. So Jesus dealt with what he was, but his love transcended 
the emotions of the moment. His love wasn't a response to the experience of the moment. His generous love was an initiation that flowed from his holiness. The fact that he was set apart to the love of God and to love others who were created in the image of God. He worked from a place of love. And as a result, he continually called Peter to grow into that love. In fact, right here in our passage, that's, that's present, right? Back up in verses 31 and 32, when, when, Peter was, when Jesus was first telling Peter that he would betray him, he said this to him. You can look up there if you want, 31, 32, or you can just listen. He said, Simon, Simon, behold. Now, Simon is another name for Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Like before he had even betrayed him, he's like, you're going to. But when you've turned again, when you have repented of your cowardice, when you have rediscovered your humility, work from that place of humility to strengthen your brothers, right? Even before the trial, Jesus was speaking life and courage into Peter so that when the trial came, he would be strengthened for it. Jesus Jesus was preemptively grounding his approval of Peter in his love for Peter. And that's really important. Jesus led with love and then moved to approval. His approval for Peter wasn't dependent on Peter. His love for Peter wasn't dependent on Peter. His love was an initiation of generosity toward Peter. His approval of Peter, his acceptance of Peter was a gift. And that gave Peter the security he needed to grow in that love. People who see holiness as comparative, people who see holiness as as this hill of moral self-improvement that we have to climb every single day, where I just have to get a little bit better and stop doing bad things a little bit more, fix myself a little bit more effectively, start doing good things, stop doing bad things. People who see holiness as comparative, even if you're just comparing yourself to yourself, which you never do, because if you compare yourself to yourself, you're going to compare yourself to others too. There's just no way around it because if you see life as comparative, you will compare. Those who see holiness as comparative become some of the most judgmental people in the world, not just in the church. Because judgmentalism flows from comparison. They feel the need to continually judge what is acceptable and who isn't. I've seen Christians in the name of holiness act in the most unholy ways. I've seen Christians stop being friends with other Christians because they didn't approve of their life choices. And if you were to push them on it, say, hey, don't you think you should still stay in relationship with them? Love them, be near them. They would say, no, 1 Corinthians 5, don't even eat with such a one. The Bible tells us when somebody's in sin, we are to separate ourselves from them and, and not even to each with such a one until they repent and they get their life straight. Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians 5 is 
uh, a passage about church discipline, which is never exercised by individuals in the church. It is led by elders of the church. It is something the Spirit leads the elders to bring. Um, we're never called to exercise church discipline on an individual basis. Um, and secondly, maybe the real issue here isn't that they're so unholy and you're so holy. Maybe the real issue is that their choices make you feel really uncomfortable. And you don't like to feel uncomfortable. Maybe the real issue is you have a hard time sitting across from somebody who's made the choices they made and learn how to have a conversation with them. To relate to them. To actually see them and continue to love them even though you no longer understand them. Maybe they stir things up in you that you don't like to feel. And instead of dealing with those feelings, you put a veneer of holiness on your choices and act in unholy ways. Listen, I'm not saying there aren't times for hard conversations. I'm not saying there aren't times for confrontations. There are. Good friends confront each other. People who love each other confront each other and have hard conversations. Why? Because love compels us. If I see somebody making choices that I think are going to unleash pain in their lives, love compels me to talk to them. Love compels me to, to say to them, I think your choices are, are going to hurt you, not help you. And I know you don't want to hear this right now, but I love you so much, I can't help but speak this to you because I love you, right? Love compels us to have hard conversations. Good friends say hard things. But they say those hard things from a place of love and a desire for my best. They're not putting me under, the, under a threat of withdrawal of love and affection if I don't conform to their expectations. They're not showing up and saying, I need to confront you about your sin because if you don't listen to me and if you don't respond to me, I'm going to have to separate myself from you. I'm going to have to withdraw my approval from you, my love from you, my presence from you, and I am now going to threaten you with the withdrawal of my love as a way to threaten you so that you will conform to my expectations. That's not love, and that's not holy. That is self-serving and manipulative. Jesus led with love and from a place of love invited people to grow in his love. Love says hard things, but love does not threaten those that it loves. It invites them. We have to work from a place of love when we don't approve of other people's choices. We have to work from a place of love when we don't understand the choices they've made. We need to work from a place of love when we see that they're making clearly sinful choices that are going to lead them into self-destruction. We need to work from a place of love if we're going to have any hope that the Spirit of God is going to work with us, through us, for their good We have to work from a place of love when we don't understand their choices and even more importantly, when their choices hurt us. Right? Because sometimes it's not just that they're making choices that make us uncomfortable. Sometimes they're making choices that actually hurt us. Bad choices that defraud us of what, what is our due in the relationship 
or give us pain that we, we don't deserve. And if we're going to do that, that means we're going to have to learn how to forgive. And that's the second point. The first is that holiness requires us to love always. The second is that holiness requires us to forgive continually. Holiness requires us to forgive continually. To love is to forgive continually. (laughs) Y'all know this. right? Those of you who are parents... Uh, how often do you have to forgive your kids? Like for saying really mean things? For doing things that are completely inconsiderate? For looking at you and saying horrible, horrible. Kids can say the most horrible things in the world. Most horrible things in the world. I hate you. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. And you're ugly. And you're fat. Right? I mean, kids just will... They, and, and they do it, I mean, it's part of developmental process. There's some sin mixed up in there, but honestly, part of it is just kids being kids. They're learning the boundaries. They're learning where do I end and you start and, and what does it mean to be differentiated from you because this world's big and complicated and I need to figure out what it means. And, but it's hard. So don't we have to forgive our kids? Yeah. And when you grow up, don't you have to forgive your parents? The way your parents weren't perfect the way that even great parents weren't perfect parents and, and, and maybe they were bad parents, right? When we grow up, we have, to, we have to learn to forgive our parents if we're gonna have any kind of relationship with our parents. Anybody who, who is married knows, man, you gotta forgive your spouse over and over and over because if you don't, man, you're both gonna be miserable. Forgiveness is the lifeblood of of relationship, right? Lovers have to forgive lovers. Friends have to forgive friends. There can be no relationship without forgiveness. There just can't because nobody brings perfect self to the relationship. We're all broken people, glorious ruins, trying to do relationships with each other, which means we're continually seeing the glory of the other but having to forgive the ruin especially when it hurts us. Forgiveness is essential to holiness because holiness is a gift of grace and it requires us to grow in grace. Jesus himself said, you must forgive even as you've been forgiven. Like it's not optional. You don't get to forgive sometimes. You don't get to forgive when somebody has earned it. You don't get to forgive when somebody has has repented and finally become good enough for you to forgive them. Repentance is a non-optional requirement of grace. And it is a fundamental expression of holiness. We cannot be holy if we are not forgiving because we can't be forgiving or we can't be loving if we're not forgiving. This is complicated. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. It's considered um, one of the most important books, Christian books written in the 20th century. Um, And it grew out of his reflections on the Yugoslav Wars and the atrocities of ethnic cleansing that marked his childhood, his family. Um, And he says this, I put a small part of this quote in your bulletin, but I want to read you the the fuller context. He said this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans 
even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice and rediscover one's own sinfulness. We are all a glorious ruin. And we're called to love others who are glorious ruins. As a result, we are called to forgive. We simply cannot grow in holiness without learning to forgive. There are times, and I want to be careful with this, there are times when we need to forgive when reconciliation is not possible. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two separate things. Forgiveness is the relinquishing of my right to judge another. Forgiveness is the relinquishing of my right to hold a debt over their head. You hurt me, you owe me. You hurt me, I will sit in a, in a posture of judgment over you and hold it over you. See, we can't sit in the seat of judgment. That's God's seat. And when we try, it becomes the seat of the scoffer described in Psalm 1. To sit in the seat of the scoffer is the epitome or the highest point of human depravity. We're actually trying to take the seat of God and enact the justice of God. When we refuse to forgive, we blaspheme God. We must forgive. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is the releasing of the debt to God to let God take care of God's business. Reconciliation is the renewal of trust within a relationship. Reconciliation is conditional. If somebody is going to harm me with every opportunity, I can forgive them, but I would be foolish to continually trust them and give them the opportunity to physically harm me or emotionally harm me. There are such a thing as healthy boundaries, boundaries that allow me to love someone and forgive someone without giving them continued opportunity to enact evil against me. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two separate things, and we can forgive while we wait for the opportunity to reconcile, which may or may not come in this lifetime. So the first non-negotiable thing for holiness is is forgiveness. It is non-negotiable. The second, reconciliation, is a process of healthy negotiation that requires boundaries. And that leads to my final point. Holiness requires us to work through the conflict. Holiness requires us to work through the conflict. If we're honest... Uh, and we look around at our own tribe, Christianity, church people aren't known for being really good at working through conflict in healthy ways. Like when most people think of the church, they don't think they're the models of how to disagree in healthy ways, right? I mean, we all know the stories of churches that literally divided over the color of the carpet, 
or, or the decor of the space or because somebody threw away Aunt Mary's china hutch that had been sitting in the back room for 20 years and they were deeply offended when it got thrown away because they weren't asked or consulted. Church people aren't known for being really good at working through conflict in healthy ways. And this is really ironic that a people who are so focused on holiness are so inept at handling discomfort. We are often tempted to hide our emotional immaturity behind our moral performance. It is easier to be morally good than emotionally mature. It is easier to do the right things and stop doing the wrong things than it is to actually grow in humility, love, and vulnerability. It is easier. So we end up justifying our lack of vulnerability and humility as the result of holy judgment. This happens in churches all the time. Where people who are really just running from feelings of discomfort, shame, fear, and sorrow start proclaiming how unholy the other person is, how, how they're, they're, they're this and they're that, and clearly it is their responsibility to separate themselves from that person because that person is, um, is unholy, not righteous, doctrinally flawed. Um, there's some critical deficiency in them that requires me to cut myself off from them. A lot, a lot, a lot of religious jargon and holy language to defend emotional immaturity. Listen, holiness requires us to seek reconciliation. Even when it's costly and hard. Listen, if the gospel tells us anything, it's this. You never get to write someone off. No one is disposable. Not even that person who hurt you. Dr. Sue Johnson, I'm going to read you another quote. She, she wrote a book. This is dealing with, um, this is dealing with a, a relationship of, uh, you know, a marriage relationship, a, a marriage of lovers or a relationship of lovers, but it applies to all relationships. She says, withdrawal and rage are the hallmarks of damaging conflict patterns. Withdrawal and rage are the hallmarks of damaging conflict patterns. So in other words, powering up or powering down. Powering up in rage, which can look like shouting to take control of the environment, becoming physically larger to intimidate someone, but it can also look like becoming manipulative so that you're controlling all the loose ends. You are, you are the one that is structuring. You are setting the terms. You are controlling the environment. You are moving into a position of power where you are no longer vulnerable and you no longer have, have the ability to be hurt. You are, you are powering up or withdrawing. Withdrawing your affection withdrawing your attention, and even withdrawing your personal presence. Withdrawal and rage, listen, are the hallmarks of damaging conflict patterns. In other words, emotional immaturity. And they mask the emotions that are central in vulnerability. So in other words, they're just a facade covering the central emotions that are actually important to actually being vulnerable. And those emotions are sadness, shame, and most of all, fear. 
If you find yourself continually stuck in a damaging conflict pattern with your lover, with your friend, with, with somebody in your community group, with somebody in the church, with, if you find yourself in a damaging conflict pattern with this person, you can bet it is being sparked by attempts to deal with the pain of a sore spot, or more likely sore spots in both of you. Most conflict in church isn't the result of theology. Most conflict in church is not the result of of differing views of moral behavior. Although they're masked that way, most conflicts in church are the result of personal hurt, feelings of shame, rejection, and unprocessed sorrow. When we're having a hard time relating to others, we need to be curious about why we're having a hard time. Listen, it is hard to relate to others. It is hard to forgive others. It is hard to reconcile with others. What we need to realize is that we're not just dealing with the other, we're dealing with ourselves. We're not just dealing with their betrayal of us, we're dealing with our response to that betrayal. And there are things we have to learn in both. We need to be just as curious about what's happening in our hearts as we are with what's happening in their behavior. The temptation is to have an unhealthy response to conflict and then find moral reasons to blame the person with whom we have the conflict. This is unholy. And it undercuts our ability to grow in holiness. If we're going to be holy, we have to love. And to love a person is to love a process. And that's going to cost a lot. But the beautiful thing is that it gives us way more than it costs. Because in the process, you cannot love someone without being changed by love. You cannot love someone who is hard to love without experiencing a greater and more profound experience of the God who loves you. As you grow in the generosity of love, you will grow in the transforming experience of grace. And you will come to see the beauty of holiness even when it's costly. And this is true. Whether we're talking about loving others, we have to have the same grace in learning to love ourselves. Because we're all people in process. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to share communion together. And and then we're going to spend some more time in worship. But let me... uh, We pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love, that you love, and because you love, you accept. That you don't wait for us to become acceptable in order to be loved. You love us, and your approval flows from your love, not our behavior. We thank you for that invitation of grace that beautiful invitation of the gospel that we don't have to fix ourselves to be forgiven. We don't have to to measure up. We don't have to perform. We just have to receive because you operate from generous love. Lord, will you help us grow in the generosity of that love? I pray for my friends this morning that are wrestling with deep hurts and wounds they've received from others. My friends that are having a difficult time even envisioning forgiving that person. Spirit, will you meet them in that place of pain, in that place of sorrow, in that place of shame? 
Will you comfort them, strengthen them, clothe them with dignity and empower them that they might have the courage to imagine the vulnerability of forgiveness. And give them wisdom, Lord, about reconciliation. Give them wisdom about the restoration of trust. But do the deep work within them as they seek to find that deep place of forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to value each other, love each other, repent of seeing one another as disposable, that we might come to truly value your body, even as you do, and come to see that to be holy, we must grow in love. We thank you that you invite us into this generosity to receive it and to grow in giving it. We pray all of this through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.